Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Good to have you with us. So it's now week four of the war in Ukraine. Because of the heroic resistance of the Ukrainian people, the war has already lasted longer than anyone, including Vladimir Putin, expected. Because of the incarnate evil of Putin, the war has also become more brutal and violent than expected, with mounting attacks on purely civilian targets like apartment buildings, hospitals, theaters, schools, and maternity wards even. But still today, nobody knows how long the war will last or how it will end. So for an update on the war so far and a look ahead, we turn today to two foreign policy experts we first talked to in the first week of the war, Steve Pfeiffer, who served as America's ambassador to Ukraine under President Bill Clinton, and Joe Cirincioni, former president of the Plowshares Fund. Ambassador Steve Pfeiffer, Joe Cirincioni, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and thank you uh, for joining us again. Our pleasure. Yep, happy to be here. So, Mr. Ambassador, uh, the last time we talked was day six of the war in Ukraine. As we speak uh, recording here, it is day 26. Are you surprised that the war has dragged on this long and has become yet even more violent? Um. Well, more importantly, is the, has the Kremlin been surprised? And I think that they have been caught very short. Uh, they, on the one hand, way underestimated the determination, the tenacity, the courage of the Ukrainians in resisting their invasion. Uh, and that's a surprise. I mean, Russia and Ukraine, they're right next door. They should have understood that. Uh, had you asked anybody uh, who knows Ukraine in the Washington think tank community, they would have said the Ukrainians will fight and they will fight hard. And the Kremlin also overestimated uh, the capabilities of its military force. Um, they, they made, or, or appeared that they wanted to make a, a quick grab for Kiev, that they thought they could bag it in the first couple of days using relatively small units that got repulsed. And what you've seen over the last three weeks is as the Russian advances have been frustrated, particularly in the north and particularly around Kiev, you have seen uh, an escalation of indiscriminate use of artillery, in, in particularly in the uh, tragic uh, attacks that are now going on in Mariupol in the south. It appears that they also um, bungled their supply lines, correct, in terms of food and fuel and well, basic logistics resources. Always, yeah, it's always been assumed that logistics are a weak point for the Russian military. Um, they tend to be try. They get a lot of their logistics actually come from. Train are by rail. In fact, they actually have a a rail force that's part of the military to do this. Uh, but they're having to supply their forces in Ukraine by truck. And uh, although we see these maps that show Russia having occupied these large swatches of land in Ukraine, in fact, the Russians really just occupy roads. And in some cases, they can't secure the roads. 
So the Ukrainians are striking at those vulnerable supply lines, figuring that if you can knock out a supply convoy full of ammunition and fuel, you're going to stop the offensive. And uh, that has led, I think, to some military experts now saying, uh, this is a term I just learned, uh, culmination, is that the Russians may be approaching this point of culmination, where simply they run out of the energy to sustain an organized offensive. And there are reports now that some Russian forces around uh, around Kiev are actually digging in. Well, Joe, what is your take? How has the Ukrainian military and civilian uh, resistance been able to hold the Russians from gaining more ground? It is a remarkable performance by the Ukrainian leadership and their military forces and their citizens. I heard one Ukrainian parliamentarian just the other day talk about how her friend was a teacher a week ago, and now he's carrying a Javelin missile. And it, it shows you the, and they're engaged in, in sending teams of two, three, five people, you know, into the woods at night to attack the Russians while they're sleeping. So this is, this is not what Putin thought he was going to encounter. And it is uh, what classic uh, military strategists would call the culmination point of his invasion. And what that means is when a, uh, the, the culmination point is reached when a, an offensive force can no longer conduct operations, when it can no longer advance. So even though you're seeing the Russians pummel cities with artillery strikes, cruise missile strikes, ballistic missile strikes, their armored columns are no longer advancing. For example, that 40-mile-long column that we saw in the first and second week of the war on its way to Kiev, it never reached Kiev. It's still stuck about 15 miles outside the city. The Ukrainian Defense Ministry reported in their daily war, war bulletin, which I get in my email every morning, that there were no offensive military operations conducted by Russian forces yesterday, meaning advances, tanks moving, military forces advancing, etc., like that. And this is just stunning. N nobody really thought this was possible, or almost nobody thought it was possible. And it really is, as Steve has said, a sign of, one, the incredible weakness of the Russian military and the incredible bravery and smarts of the Ukrainians who were now conducting counter-offensive operations, going out, going after the Russians, in some cases, pushing them back from cities that they had tried to surround and opening, freeing those cities once again from the uh, the attacks of the Russian forces. But isn't the danger, uh, Ambassador, of this, uh, let's use the phrase, the culmination point, that the Russians will see that not as um, a reason for abandoning the effort or pulling back, but it, just the opposite of upping the effort and, and using ever more aggressive weapons and tactics? Yeah, no, I think that's one of the worries is that um, as the Kremlin becomes even more frustrated, the inclination in the Kremlin may not be to seek a negotiated solution, a ceasefire, and then a solution that would provide for the withdrawal of Russian forces. Right. Uh, but they may double down. And again, what, what I fear is we've seen it in Mariupol uh, now, but uh, you know, look at what the Russian military did in Syria. You know, bombing hospitals, you know, bombing refugee centers. Uh, look at what the Russian military did back in the Chechen, Second Chechen War to Grozny, where they basically sat back and day and night pounded the city with artillery and short-range rockets until 
the city was flattened. And and what I worry about is that the Russians begin to shift to that tactic. And the Russian calculation there might be that Zelensky will then want to save Ukrainian lives and will then start to compromise beyond what he's already offered. But I wonder if this may be just another one of the Kremlin's miscalculations in a long line of miscalculations over the last month. And that is, that could have the opposite effect is even hardening the determination of the Ukrainians to resist. And this is one of those things, if you look at the numbers of and the types of equipment, the Russians should be winning this war. Uh, but wars are not just about numbers and types of equipment, they're about you know, determination and will. And the Russians don't seem to be very motivated when you look at the soldiers. And the Ukrainians are highly motivated. I think in part for many Ukrainians, this is an existential fight. If they lose this fight, they lose their democracy and they lose what I believe is a vision that many young Ukrainians share, which is to become a normal European country. And that all goes out if the Russians prevail. Yeah. Joe, how long do you think the Ukrainian military can hold on? And do they have the kind of weapons they need? I think they have most of the kinds of weapons they need, but not in the quantities they need. And this is why you hear uh, President Zelensky and others urging greater military assistance to Ukraine. And we have now um, convoys of uh, trucks bringing this kind of equipment in. Another thing the Ukrainians report like is what? that- Like well, Like what? Well, some of what they need is just the basic equipment, Kevlar vests, uniforms, they're just uniforms, helmets, small arms, shotguns, rifles, things like that. And then you get to the more advanced infantry weapons still, like the Javelin anti-tank missile, the Stinger uh, anti-aircraft missile, and also Russian-made equipment like that, the SA-7, SA-8, which have a longer range than the Stinger. And what they really would like is, uh, is heavy equipment. And that gets a little complicated about the decision of whether you want to supply that, which might provoke a, a, a reaction from Putin. But that would be um, bigger anti-air equipment think, capable of shooting down fighters at long range, like the S-300 uh, or even the S-400 anti-missile, anti-air system, and things that they could use for counter-artillery. That's what's really hurting them right now, is the artillery barrages and the ro- multiple rocket launches that are coming into the cities, when the very, very accurate long-range cruise missile strikes that are coming in. Those are the things that are hitting the theaters, the shopping centers, those precision strikes, ammunition. Those are from um, basically from cruise missiles. And they could use things to suppress those. And that that tends to be drones would be very useful for them. And you see the U.S. is starting to supply some small drones called the switchblade, which is capable of doing that kind of thing, flying many kilometers out and then dive bombing into the artillery that's attacking you. Uh, and they need more of those. And every indication is that the West, including the United States and its NATO allies, is willing and is, and is now supplying them. So it, with, if those supplies continue, the Ukrainian forces could wage this fight for months. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there are now something like 30 countries. It's mm-hmm. not just NATO, but countries like Sweden, Finland, Japan. There are 30 countries now feeding defense assistance and in many cases lethal assistance, such as anti-armor and anti-air weapons into the Ukrainians. 
this is becoming a global effort. Right. Uh, it seems that uh, the, the United States and these other nations are willing to do every, anything and give anything except what Zelensky asked for last week, which was a no-fly zone. Hmm. Joe? Well, there's a good reason for that. Um, yeah, a very good reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and because, you know, it's not like we're not in WandaVision where you cast a spell and you put a, a plexiglass <laughs> dome around a a magic force field around a city and therefore protect it. No, a, a no-fly zone is something you have to enforce. And the very first thing the U.S. military does when a no-fly zone is suppress enemy air defenses. That means we're going to go in and we're going to bomb Russian sites in mm. Russia, right, that are, have these anti-air missiles. We're going to be killing Russians, killing Belarusians, and then also shooting down any planes that violate that that um, no-fly zone, and that means also that U.S. fighters would be hit. U.S. air personnel would die. So that is a sustained conflict between U.S. and Russian forces, something that has not happened since the Bolshevik Revolution, when we set troops troops into Russia to aid the white Russians to try to stop that revolution. Mm. There were some skirmishes during the Korean War. There was a, a fight firefight a couple of years ago in Syria that killed a, a lot of Russian mercenaries, but nothing sustained. You do that, you have a sustained U.S.-Russian fight, well, that's going to escalate, and, and there's no telling where it would go. And that, as President Biden said, could be World War III. He's not kidding about that. I agree with that assessment, and that's why that is a firm line that he doesn't want to cross, and neither does NATO. The NATO allies are not keen to do this. I don't know of any who have just urged the, the U.S. To, to do this, even the Eastern European countries. Yeah, Steve, yeah Bill, uh, Joe's uh, exactly right. I'd add one additional point, which is if you look at the, particularly the civilian casualties being caused in Ukraine, some of that's coming from Russian airstrikes, but the large bulk of that is coming from artillery and mortars and tank rounds and short-range unguided rockets. And an air, a no-fly zone wouldn't do anything to stop that. So you, 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 you would run into the huge risk, which Joe's just described, and the gain's actually going to be relatively marginal in terms of the, the lives saved. Uh, uh, Steve, let me ask you, we haven't talked about, and I don't hear much anymore about sanctions, but the sanctions were the toughest maybe ever, right? Uh, are they working? Are they having any impact at all? Yeah, I, we they know? are. I mean... Uh, you're already beginning to see uh, uh, lines developing in Russia for certain things. Sugar <laughs> across Russia now. There's a, there's a, there's a there's a rush now to find sugar. But uh, I'll give you a couple of examples of what's happened. Uh, the ruble has lost. I think it's about thirty to forty percent of its value since two months ago. The Russian stock exchange has not opened since the West announced the sanctions, because the expectation is that the stocks would just crash. I think I saw somewhere that said some Russian listed stocks on Western exchanges had lost 90% of their value. So what is happening now is it's beginning. It will take a little bit of time, but the expectation is that before too long, Russians are going to be facing double digit inflation. Uh, I have seen expectations for the contraction of the Russian economy of anywhere from 7 to 15% this year. Uh, so there are going to be, I think, some very painful economic consequences for for Russia. 
But it's also things that go beyond this. I mean, Boeing and Airbus have now stopped providing any spare parts to Russia. And there's probably about 600 Boeing and Airbus aircraft operating in Russia, including on Russian domestic flights. Uh, and, and I think I saw somewhere that all of the airworthiness certificates for those planes have now been suspended because not only are they not getting spare parts, they're no longer getting the digital updates that they need for the computer systems on board the planes. Hmm. Uh, so you, you, Aeroflot, uh, two weeks ago, suspended all of its flights except to Belarus, even though Aeroflot is not banned from flying to places like in, in Asia and such like that. So there are going to be a lot of impacts. And you see it in one really interesting indicator, which is in the last three weeks, the estimate is between 200 and 300,000 Russians have left. They're going out via Georgia, Finland. They're going out via Armenia. I think it was either the New York Times or the Washington Post had an article talking about people uh, from Russia transiting through Armenia. They can still get by air to, to Armenia. And they're planning on going to the Europe or the United States. And most of them are saying, we're not going back. And so Russia, and again, these will be consequences for years down the road. But the people who are leaving are the high-tech workers, the people with real skills, the people that Russia needs for a modern economy. The problem I think that Ukraine has is these impacts are going to be felt weeks, months down the road. And from the Ukraine point of view, you'd like to have the impact felt right now. And that brings up one last question. The head of the Russian Central Bank, the Russian Minister of Finance, these are smart people. They know about economics. They understand international finance. They know just how bad the economic hit is going to be. The question is, do they have access to Putin? And if they hmm. do... Are they actually telling them this is what's going to happen to your economy in the coming months? Joe, what is your take on do we know? I mean, look, President Macron's talked to Putin. Uh, Erdogan from Turkey's talked to him. The prime minister of Israel has met with him. I mean, do we know what Putin wants? I think or we do. what he's willing to accept. Go ahead. Ah, yeah. ah that's... <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Let me answer the first question. <laughs> you know, got it, uh, got it. Yeah. I, I think it's very clear what he what he wanted in the beginning and the way he talked and the speeches he'd been making, you know, months before the invasion was that he just wanted to erase Ukrainian um, national identity. He wanted to erase Ukraine as a nation. And he talked about Ukraine as being, you know, part of Russia and what we have share a common identity, he said. Well, that's not what the Ukrainians think. But that's what he thought he could get. He could just move in quickly in a few days. And Steve and I talked about this on day six of the war, that by then, by day six, it was already clear that he was failing to reach his objective. Uh, and, and 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 to put in place either a, a, a puppet regime that could um, align Ukraine to Russia or to just directly annex it the way he's annexed Crimea and the way he wants to annex part of the Donbass region. That's what he wanted. So what would, what might he settle for? I think that the terms of a possible diplomatic solution are pretty clear and they're on the table. And that would include a, a neutrality of Ukraine, Ukraine not joining NATO, not joining the EU, and actually President Zelensky has indicated he could accept that. Um, it would include recognizing Crimea as part of Russia and recognizing the Donbass region as either part of Russia or an independent 
republic. That causes real difficulty for the Ukrainians. I don't know if they're in any mood to give that, but to save the rest of their cities, that might be something that the Ukrainians could agree to. But the final element that what Putin wants is the one that I don't think any Ukrainian is going to agree to, which is the demilitarization of Ukraine, you know, giving up their arms. There isn't a chance in hell that the Ukrainians are going to lay down their arms at this point. So those are the the frame of this, but I don't think Putin is ready for this. You know, I, I speak to some of my colleagues on the left who seem to think that, that Biden uh, holds the magic key to this, that Biden could, as once said to me, Biden could snap his fingers, fingers and we'd have it a, a peace plan in place. That is not what's going on at all. Zelensky is ready to negotiate. He's, he wants to meet Putin directly. The allies and the U.S. want a negotiated settlement. That's the only way we could see to end this war because you know, we think we're in a stalemate that's going to go on for months, possibly on this, with neither side being able to militarily defeat the other. Um, and But it's Putin. Putin is the one who's not ready to do this yet. He's still holding out the hope that some further escalation, either further bombardment of cities, maybe the use of nuclear weapons. I think that's unlikely, but you can't rule it out. Perhaps use of terror weapons like chlorine gas uh, could terrorize the population and further empty the cities, tilt the balance. Putin's still holding out for some miracle military solution to this. That's what's preventing a real discussion of that kind of compromise. Yeah, I, I think uh, Joe's right. The problem is right at this point, the Kremlin is not prepared for a serious negotiation where they make some compromises. But even if they do, it's going to be, a, as Joe suggested, a hard discussion. Um, most Ukrainians, I think, probably understand they don't have the leverage to get Crimea back. Mm -hmm. But still, politically, it's going to be very hard for Zelensky to say, I accept that as Russian. There'll be a lot of negative blowback. But even on the neutrality question, and actually, I guess this is one point I would differ with Joe a bit on, uh, I think the Ukrainians are prepared to say, yes, we will abandon our desire to join NATO. I don't think they're prepared to give up the desire to join the European Union. Yeah, you're right. You're right. A week and a half ago, the European Union finally said, we recognize your membership perspective. Um, but then on the neutrality has a really big question because the Ukrainians say, what will be the guarantees for our neutrality? And how do they trust anything from Moscow? I mean, in 1994, as part of the deal in which the Ukraine gave up what was in the world's third largest nuclear arsenal, uh, the, Rus the, the Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances had the Russians saying, we commit to respect your sovereignty and your territorial integrity, and we commit not to use force against you. And of course, that's all happened. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there, there may be a request, and this will may be a difficult issue for the West, is the Ukrainians may say, we want some kinds of security guarantees from the West if the Russians violate this. And, and I think that'll be difficult. Well, I was mm -hmm. just going to ask you that. In a sense, uh, Steve or Joe, do, doesn't Zelensky have a, um, he's got a pretty strong hand here, right? I mean, in a sense, he does have a lot of leverage. He, he doesn't have to win the war. He just has to not lose the war. Yes. <laughs> right. But see, here's, yeah. this is the difficult part because not losing means, okay, you've, you've, you've blocked the physical advance of the armored uh, thrusts. Right. Yes, you've done that. You have prevented them from surrounding Kiev and other cities. So that means the supply lines are open. So things still get in, including food and you know, basic humanitarian supplies that you need. But can you 
And in some areas, you push them back. But can you really expel them from your country? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. So what you're really counting on is a sort of a, a war of attrition where you're killing Russians fat more than they're killing you and that you're breaking the combat capability of the force. You know, the standard rule of thumb is if you can, if you can decimate 10% of an attacking force, a, a battalion or even a brigade, you know, you can take it out of combat. Can you do that with the Russian force? Maybe, m- maybe. But still, it's very difficult to see how the U- Ukrainians can win this. So in the end, you got to either hope for a collapse of the Russian force, and that might be possible if this goes on for months and the Putin loses the war at home, he loses the economic war, he loses the diplomatic war. The Russian troops could just vote with their feet and, and like they did in World War I and just leave the front lines. It's possible. But at, at what cost? By that point, you're going to have tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians killed in these um, artillery barrages in the city. So that is a for a city, a country the size of uh, Ukraine, so what, 44 million? That, yeah. that, that, that's, those were enormous losses to take. And, and the cities would be completely destroyed, completely destroyed at this point. Very tough for, to see Ukraine holding out that long. Uh, again, our guest today, Ambassador Steve Pfeiffer who is our U.S. ambassador to Ukraine under President Clinton, Joe Sirincione, uh, former head of the Plowshares Fund. And President Biden heads off to Europe today, uh, this week uh, to deal with the Ukraine situation and meet with uh, our some of our most important allies. We'll find out what we can expect from that after we take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. Then we'll be back with Steve Pfeiffer and Joe Sirincione. Friends, you know, I'm like you, I'm sure. Every time we see the images of Ukraine on television, people being blown out of their apartment buildings, taking shelter in basements, fleeing to the borders, families breaking up. All of us ask ourselves, oh, my God, what can we do? How can we possibly help? Here's another idea. Carol and I are doing this, and I hope you will, too. Uh, let's help out the world's central kitchen. Jose Andres and his people are on the scene like they are with every major disaster. Uh, they're on the job in Ukraine, in Poland, Moldova, in Romania, uh, helping the refugee, providing hot meals, and a whole lot more. They need our help. Uh, and that's one way to get help directly to the Ukrainian people. Go to their website at wck.org, wck.org, and provide whatever help you can. Thank you. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. 
Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Thank you again for joining the Bill Press Pod. We're talking Ukraine on day 26 of the war. Joe Cirincioni, frequent guest, good friend of the Plowshares, head of, former head of the Plowshares Fund, Ambassador Steve Pfeiffer who was our ambassador to Ukraine under President Clinton. So, uh, Joe, let me start with you this time. Uh, President Biden is going off to Brussels this week, uh, meet with our NATO allies, and then actually going into Poland. What can we expect? What's the purpose of this mission? Uh, Again, Biden is handling this beautifully. He is preserving our strongest asset in this conflict, which is allied unity. Uh, The Western alliance, NATO is hasn't been this together on an issue in, I would say, decades. And it's and that unity is spreading to the rest of Europe. Other countries are united with the NATO alliance, even if they're outside of NATO, like Switzerland and Sweden and mm-hmm. Finland. And, and Biden is very careful not to go too far in U.S. measures, making sure that everything he does has the support of NATO allies. And that's often delicate and it opens him up to criticism of not moving fast enough and not being strong enough. But what he's doing is very, very smart. And here he's going to go not just to Brussels, the the head of the seat of NATO command, but also to Poland, which is on the front line. I mean, you cannot mm-hmm. get any closer to Ukraine. This is where the refugees are streaming over the border. And Poland is critical here. You know, they have absorbed, I don't know, is it a Steve, maybe you know, maybe a million refugees. I, I think two million. I mean, it's two million. I mean, I think they've gone into Poland or have passed through Poland, and for example, heading to Germany. Right. So you know this better than I do, Steve. But but that is an enormous strain on a country. So you got to make sure that Poland stays strong. That there's no backlash in Poland to this flood of of immigrants, and that Poland has the the support that it needs to be able to maintain this and to be able to get the supplies over Poland. And Poland has to know that we got their back, that it's, yes, they're members of NATO and yes, we have Article 5, but that no kidding around, a Rus- if Russian forces attack Poland, they have to know that we're going to be there to defend them. And remember, a Russian missile hit a supply and training camp 15 miles from the Polish border into Ukraine. So this is very, very real for, for Poland. And Biden seems to be, you know, at his at his peak here. I mean, everything he's done, 36 years in the Senate, eight years as vice president. I mean, in some ways, it seems to be leading to this moment. He is the best equipped president we could possibly have to deal with this crisis at this moment. Yeah. Steve, how do you see his mission? Yeah, I think there are going to be sort of two sets of things to talk about uh, because it'll be a meeting not only with NATO, but there's also a meeting with the European Union and then a meeting of the G7. So one question will be is, uh, in terms of supporting Ukraine, are there additional sanctions that could be applied now to crank up the near-term pressure on Moscow? And are there additional arms that we could supply to Ukraine? And part of the problem here, quite frankly, is you know, things that the United States and NATO could provide to the Ukrainians, they don't know how to operate. So you're, the universe of weapons that you can send is it, it, limited. That's why they're looking at things like S-300 stocks, it would take the Ukrainians probably months to learn how to work uh, the Patriot system effectively. Mm-hmm. So a lot of things that could be provided just don't make any sense in the terms of the near-term fight. So are, more arms for Ukraine and more sanctions, I think, will be one subject. The other topic that I hope they begin to explore, because I think it's 
potentially down the road uh, is I agree with where the Biden administration and NATO is right now in terms of we're not going to use American and NATO forces to defend Ukraine, that, that we will do lots for Ukraine, but we won't avoid this direct military to military clash. But I can see the Russians doing things that, you know, again, if the Russians bring in their artillery and they get in position and they just start shelling day and night uh, Kiev, and it shows a Russian desire to basically do to Kiev what the Russian military did to Grozny and Chechnya 20 years ago, there's going to be huge pressure on the NATO to do something. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they may want to think about now, you know, what would they do? And it's a really hard question, and I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Can I just add Look, something to that? I mean, please, I think please. Putin at this point is is desperate to regain some kind of momentum. You know, so he's looking for some move or series of moves that could break the will of the Ukrainian people to resist, that could convince the West that they should back down from support. It's something to turn the, the tide of battle from the way it's going. And w- one area is to just increase the bombardment to use, as I say, chemical weapons, something like that, or to mount a, a, a massive thrust, say, to Odessa to just try to break through and, and and capture a major city. But the other could be things like uh, what we've seen a little of, capturing senior officials, decimation of leadership at the highest levels. And the Ukrainian Defense Ministry is reporting the infiltration of what they call terrorist groups into Ukraine with this purpose in mind to try and pick off senior leadership of the Ukrainian mm-hmm. government, both at the national level, but also at the the city level. So I would be looking for those kind of moves out of Putin in the next couple of weeks. Could it include the use of tactical nuclear weapons? We we discussed this when we're at five, six days into the the war. And I I think it's, unfortunately, um, I think you cannot rule out that possibility, which is why you hear so much discussion of it. As the Secretary General of the United Nations says, it has gone from the unthinkable to the conceivable at this point. And that's where we are. You know, it's this is um, using a nuclear weapon is not something you do when you're winning a war. You know, this is a, a using a nuclear weapon is a loser's move. You know, it's something you do to try to regain that momentum, to try to stave off defeat. And if Putin feels that there is, He's tried everything else and he's still losing. This might be the card he goes for. It's in Russian doctrine. They practice this as part of their combined arms exercises. Every major military exercise he's done since 2000 has included the exercise of nuclear-capable weapons. We're seeing him use some of these now, like the this, the attack of the hypersonic uh, weapon that they're using, the so-called Kinzhal Hypersonic cruise missile, Kinzhal means dagger in, in Russian. This is a nuclear capable system. We've seen it uh, in conventional arm, uh, conventional use twice now, just again yesterday, we believe. Um, and so he's sort of inching up to that possibility. So that has got to be something that worries you. It's not crazy to think that that is a move that he could uh, consider. God forbid, Mr. Ambassador, but were he to do so, does the United States have any choice but to respond accordingly? Well, I think it depends on on how he uses I mean, if it's used against a NATO country, uh, my guess is that there's a very high likelihood of a nuclear response. 
uh, in part because the worry would be that if you did not respond, uh, the Kremlin might conclude, well, we can use more of these. The, the West is afraid. Uh, and, and what I worry about that is the more weapons that they use, at some point the West would respond, and then you're that much farther into the escalation cycle and things very quickly span out of control. Now, if they use it over Ukraine, and some of this is just, just a demonstration shot over Ukraine, which might not kill many people, um, you know, I, I, that's a hard one to figure out how NATO responds. But I, I guess there are, there are going to be some in Moscow, and I think even in the inner circle who would argue to Putin you know, that that's really a big step and that the reputational damage to Russia is going to be huge, including from traditional partners like India. I mean, what does India do if the Russians introduce a nuclear weapon into a conflict that the Russian military started and where the Russians on all the books is far superior in terms of conventional forces? And perhaps more importantly, what does it do to the Chinese? Uh, Xi has uh, thus far refrained from criticizing Russia, but he's described Putin as his best friend. And at some point, what Russia is doing, I think, is going to begin to kind of inflict some reputational damage on Xi. And you've already seen, I think, in the last several days, the Russian media or the Chinese media seems to be adopting a bit more balanced view of this crisis. And then last week, the Chinese ambassador, and they brought in the press for this, met with uh, Ukrainian officials in Lviv. Uh, so there, there would be, I think, there's already some nervousness in China about what Russia is doing. And to the extent that Putin discussed it with Xi, Putin probably suggested to Xi this will be over in five or six days before anybody can get upset. And that's not happening. But right. And Joe, weapons, what does Xi do in that case? Yeah. And Joe, uh, before he left for Europe, of course, a couple of days ago, President Biden um, had a two-hour conference call with President Xi uh, and, and basically said, don't do what Putin wants. Don't give them the help, military or economic help that he wants. And if you do, there will be serious consequences. So what's the interest, uh, China's interest in siding with Vladimir Putin in this war? Well, as Steve said, they signed a document right before the Olympics that talked about their friendship yeah, as right. stronger than any alliance and just over-the-top rhetoric about this. And clearly, it's in China's interest to try to build up a counter to the um, international rules-based order that the the U.S. Has, and the West has led ever since World War Two ended, including you know developing alternative economic systems. To do, they have an alternative to the SWIFT banking system, for example, the Shanghai Cooperation Council, economic instruments, Belt and Road Initiative, international aid programs. But they're short on allies. There aren't a lot of allies for China. Russia would be a big one, right? Yeah. And, and 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 so that's what's at stake for him, and that's where she seemed to be going, and this. Ukrainian invasion really puts a stick in the spokes of all that. This, is, as Steve, Steve says, this is not the partner you want to have, particularly as it looks like he's losing, like he looks like he's losing his mind, not just losing the war, and that he's starting to fracture the uh, the Kremlin leadership itself. He's now looking for scapegoats. You know, when Steve and I were on uh, 20 days ago talking about this, we predicted two things. One, that this war was going to get a lot worse, which unfortunately it has. And the two, that Putin would be banging the table, demanding to know what went wrong. Well, he's he's doing more than banging the table. He's put under house arrest the head of the uh, FSB's 
Fifth Service, which is in charge of providing intelligence on Ukraine. There's one report that he's purged a thousand officials and put a whole new group of people in. Um, so, so you know, these the. It's, it's possible the Kremlin is really under tremendous strain at this point. That is not the kind of ally that uh, China had hoped when it had pledged its eternal friendship. Um, just sort of wrapping up, but two things we haven't covered yet. One, uh, President Biden this week called President Vladimir Putin a war criminal, a murderous dictator. Mr. Diplomat, Mr. Ambassador, does this take things to a new level? And uh, are we seriously talking about war crimes? Do, do we see that in Ukraine? Yes. No, there, there's no doubt. I mean, indiscriminate shelling of civilian uh, apartment buildings, of, of shopping malls, uh, there's no doubt in my mind. And there are, I think, a number of countries now actually uh, working, and the Ukrainians themselves are working to document this. Now, there's a question whether you can ever you know, bring to account those people. But yes, there are war crimes being committed by the Russian military in Ukraine on a daily basis. Now, as for the, what the president said, I guess you know, the diplomat in me would have put it slightly different, would have said that the Russian military is committing war crimes uh, and Vladimir Putin is, the, in effect, the commander of chief of that military. So he bears some responsibility. Uh, but I, I, I note today that... Um, that the foreign Russian foreign ministry called in the American ambassador, Ambassador Sullivan, basically to raise the question of uh, President Biden calling Putin a war criminal, uh, said it was not worthy of a, of a high-ranking statement such as the president, and they has put American-Russian relations on the verge of rupture. Well, I, I actually think it's you know what's what's put American-Russian relations on in such a negative state <laughs> is the Russian invasion of a sovereign Ukraine. Right. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Joe, uh, Putin can call Zelensky a Nazi, and um, that's perfectly fine, right? Yeah, right. Well, that's part of the propaganda war, which, by the way, is also a war crime. Everything we're, we're seeing on our TV is a war crime from the the launch of the war, which in itself, it, it's, it's against international law to plan, prepare, or start an aggressive war. So from the beginning, it's, it's, it's a war crime in its overall intent and execution, but everything else, indiscriminate shelling, hitting civilian infrastructure, uh, deliberately targeting uh, uh, concentrations of, of civilians, killing children in the war. I mean, it's just everything we're seeing is a war crime. There's, if there was one thing that might um, that Putin's going to want if in a negotiated settlement is some kind of amnesty for this, some kind of guarantee that he's not going to be brought up before the International Criminal Court or other judicial bodies to pay for these crimes. Yeah, uh, well, we'll see how that goes. So 20 days ago, uh, Joe, as you indicated, uh, both of you, um, your opinion at the time, very early into the war, was that it was not going to be over anytime soon and it was going to get more violent the longer it it uh, lasted. Uh, 26 days in, let me ask each of you to give us your best assessment. Nobody knows for sure your best assessment of what, li what lies ahead um, in, in, in Ukraine um, beyond day 26. Joe, you want to lead us off? I will, and then Steve can correct me. because <laughs> Number one, nobody knows how this is going to end, right? So we just don't Let's know. Start, start yeah, there. There's, there's too many uncertainties here. Um, 
both internal to Moscow, the situation on the ground, uh, the will of the Russian forces to continue this operation. But my guess would be that this is going to grind down for another month, that this is what it means to be in a stalemate. And my guess is that this is a, a pattern that we've seen before from Russian uh, forces operating first in Chechnya and then in Syria, where that war just ground on and on and on. It's different because of the level of supply. And that's unlike Syria, this isn't a civil war. I mean, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that limited uh, outside assistance. This is a war of aggression. This is another country being uh, uh, invaded. So I think Ukraine's going to have the internal support to be able to continue, as I say, for months. I'm not sure that Russia has the support to be able to continue for months, but at least a month more of war is is what I would predict with uh, very grim news continuing to come across our newspapers and TV screens and podcasts. Ambassador? Yeah, let me say, I can see three scenarios. One scenario is in the Kremlin, they conclude that the costs of this conflict, both in terms of Russian casualties and destroyed Russian military equipment and sanctions is just too much. And they decide to have a real negotiation where they make real compromises. Uh, unfortunately, there's no sign in publicly in Moscow that they've reached that point. But that's out there that would hopefully stop the fighting and stop the killing. The second option is that the Russian military somehow recovers and actually defeats the Ukrainian military and, and the Russians take Kiev. Uh, I also think that's not a likely scenario. And that's a scenario that would be, I guess, a victory for Putin. But it would be a victory that would entail a years, if not decades long occupation of Ukraine. Uh, the Ukraine. The fight would still remain. It would be resistance as opposed to military versus military. And the Russians would be, have to uh, occupy the country for years, if not decades. Um, they would be politically isolated internationally, and the sanctions would continue to decimate the Russian economy. Uh, but I think Joe outlined the third scenario, which is the probably the most likely, is that we have reached the culmination point for the Russian offensive. They don't withdraw, uh, but it's a stalemated fighting where both sides continue to go at each other. There are going to be lots of casualties, but neither side makes a breakthrough that leads the other side to conclude that it really has to find a way to sue for peace. And so I fear, because it's going to exact a horrible toll on the Ukrainian population, that this war is going to go on for some time to come. But I can also very much understand why the Ukrainians are prepared to pay those price to resist what the Russians are trying to do to them. Well, let's just hope that your first scenario is the one that plays out. That would be uh, that that would be maybe too much too much to hope for. But Joe Sirincioni, Ambassador Steve Pfeiffer, thank you so much for rejoining us. I would hope that we don't have to meet again to talk about the war in Ukraine. (laughs) Let us hope not. Uh, But if we do, I hope you both be available. Meanwhile, thank you again for your good work and thanks for your time today. Uh, Great to join you again on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Take care. And that's it for today's podcast on Ukraine, the latest on Ukraine with uh, Steve Pfeiffer. America's ambassador to Ukraine under President Bill Clinton, Joe Cirincioni from the Council on Foreign Relations, member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, This week, it's going to be another busy week. President Biden off to Brussels and then on to Poland to shore up our allies and get more help to Ukraine. 
the Senate Judiciary Committee begins hearings on President Biden's nominee, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, to the Supreme Court, uh, and Congress fighting over providing more funding for COVID. All of that we'll be talking about on the roundtable on Friday morning. So in the meantime, take care of yourself, stay strong, stay safe, come back and see us for the roundtable this week, the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.